I knew I needed to be done, but I couldn't say whether that was a year or that was three years. And if I knew the amount of time, I could make a plan to get through it. But when you could do another year and still be another year away, all motivation goes away. It's so demoralizing to, to look down an endless hallway. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, Josh makes the case for a fixed five-year PhD. Or at least he tries to. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 54. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Hey, Josh. Episode 54, and we're going to talk about fixed five-year PhD. <laughs> lots no, of... Uh, no trouble there. Lots of alliteration. We'll do it. So, what are we drinking tonight, Josh? Dan, I was out in the mountains of North Carolina this week, and when I'm out there, I have to stop by Asheville, which I love, and go to one of my favorite breweries, and that is Wicked Weed Brewing, and I picked up their seasonal brew. This is the Wicked Weed Watermelon Saison. Okay, now wait a second. It's summertime, right? And we have, I believe, had two lemon-flavored beers. Two? We had the lemon shandy, and we had one that contained lemon and dandelion. Oh, yes. Yep. I remember the dandelion beer. The dandelion That's beer. right. We had one that was a prickly pear. We had some prickly pear. We're doing watermelon. Did I miss any of, of your interesting flavors? I think we might have had a tangerine. Yeah, I think that's true. So, yeah. so if there is a fruit that can go into a beer, we will have sampled it oh, this we, summer. Did we have a blueberry? Oh, that was last year. We did last year, yeah. yeah. Well... I feel like summer would not be complete without some watermelon beer. So this is a special one, Dan. This one is one that that everybody gets excited about when it finally comes out. It's brewed with real watermelon. And as I said last week, my big pet peeve is a beer with a flavor in the name that you can't actually taste in the beer. Not a problem here. Yeah, I can taste the watermelon, and I was pleased that it wasn't the flavor of the watermelon Jolly Rancher. Do you know that watermelon flavor? Oh, like the fake yeah, watermelon. Yeah, the fake candy watermelon flavor. It's not, it, it's, you can taste how that candy evokes the flavor of watermelon, but it's not watermelon at all. This is good. No, this, this is actually this watermelon is, This is good. This was my wife's beer of choice on the beach. Uh, oh, it'd be perfect. The last yeah. couple days, yeah. Um, it's a good one. I love Wicked Weed Brews. Uh, if you get a chance, it's kind of hard to find as summer draws to a close, but check out the Wicked Weed Watermelon. Saison. All right, Dan. Um, we, I think what we might try to do is kick off the start of a trilogy oh, this week. Good. <laughs> the PhD strikes back. <laughs> That's right. This is any uh, any epic storyline worth its salt um, will be oh, in trilogy, trilogy yep. format. So or seven Harry Potter. Maybe we'll get carried away and we'll Great. we'll keep rolling, and then maybe we'll make the last part instead of one episode. We'll split it into two. Done. To, yeah. Done. So what I want to do, Dan, is. Have we mentioned the NIGMS division of NIH before? I think we have. Uh, is this our friend Kenny Gibbs? Yeah, our friend Kenny Gibbs, he he works with the uh, NIGMS. That's the National Institutes of General Medical Science. I say our friend as a person that we've like tweeted at. <laughs> so I think that counts. I've met Kenny a few okay, times. Okay, well, so I, I haven't. I think that counts. Kenny, I assume we'd be friends. If He's we a great met. guy. Yeah, I'm great. sure he'd like you. So anyway, they put out a call recently, and what they wanted specifically is an information gathering on people's ideas of how to modernize the PhD, 
how to modernize PhD training. They actually got a little hashtag going on Twitter, hashtag modern PhD. So if you've got some ideas, you can tweet at them that way. But one of the reasons they're interested in this is NIGMS, they are the, the purveyors of the T32 training grants, which we might have mentioned on the show before. But this is one of the main mechanisms through which the NIH provides funding specifically for science trainees, for grad students, for postdocs, these T32 training grants. So, did we hear about these when we were trying to track postdocs, or is that a different thing? Yes, we did, actually. Okay. Yep, we did. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, subset of postdocs on these T32 training grants. And the cool thing about these training grants is besides funding graduate students to, to do their PhD, often what comes along with the T32 training is maybe some other additional training outside of just lab training. So it can be a good deal. Um, but anyway, I think it's pretty neat. They're really crowdsourcing, trying to put it out there, really an open call for anyone to share their ideas about ways the PhD training could be modernized. So in my work, Dan, we were brainstorming some ideas that we might submit and got some interesting discussions going that I thought would be cool to have here on the show and see what our listeners think. Let's do it. So, Really, there were, there were three big ideas that, that came from from just sitting down and thinking about this. This is the trilogy. This is the lead up to the trilogy. And this is the trilogy. So, so the three main things that I want to talk about at some point on the show. First, I think making the time to degree more standardized and predictable for students. This so that's, is the five-year PhD we've been hinting at. That's right. So I want to actually get into that on the show today. Okay, that's today's episode. That's what, today. What are two and three? So in our next segment, what I'd really like to do is focus on that advisor-student relationship. So many scientists break at that phase. Oh, it's so important. I mean, it's critical. And you know, I think there are some ways that relationship can be nurtured or at least organized in such a way to maximize the chance of success in graduate school. So I want to get into some ways we could maybe improve that structure. So stay tuned for that if that sounds like it's important to your particular uh, brand of training. What's number three? And then the last thing I want to talk about is this movement towards team science. This idea that so many grad... Sounds like a superhero squad, doesn't it? (laughs) Team science! Team science! Organize! I think the way that the graduate school experience is structured now is you get in a lab, you've got your project, and really that's what you want. You're like, I want my project. Um, But really the whole thing rises and falls on you, and that can be demotivating when inevitably challenges do arise. And so really what can we learn from maybe the way industry or business deals with projects and problems in more of a team effort scenario, and could that be applied to restructuring the fundamentally restructuring the way we actually do graduate training. Okay, so those sound like an interesting uh, set of suggestions, and we'll have those conversations. But today specifically, you're going to have to try and sell me on this idea of fixing the amount of time it takes to get a PhD. And I got to tell you, I'm skeptical about what you're what you're trying to pitch, because to me, a PhD is um, you doing an independent project you are demonstrating that you've got the chops to think through it, that you've got the, the ability to design the experiments, to carry them out, to interpret the results, to communicate those to your committee and to the general audience, to write papers. And I can't imagine how you could prove all those things to me, ever, that each person could do that in the same way, in the same time frame. I definitely feel your concerns, Dan. And, and first of all, as you know, I have utmost respect for the process of getting a PhD and the transferable skills that are gained through that process. And all those things you said, I totally agree, 
are one of the things that make you really so marketable to such a broad range of, of jobs and careers after grad school um, because of those those things you learn. But I guess, you know, the first thing that came to mind to me in just thinking through how can we modernize the PhD? Well, the very fact that we would have a conversation about how to modernize it means that in some ways we're saying the way we do things must be antiquated or must not, or some way we used to do things that might have made sense back in the day don't make sense with the realities of the world today. And one of those is, is one of the things we talk about all the time on the show, and that is what do grad students go do after they get their PhD? Uh, they do a lot of different, diverse things. So many out. different yeah. things. And if we think about what did they used to do, well, most of them actually used to go on often directly and start their own labs. Well, and, that, and, and we're talking about modern, and we're not talking about ancient. That was probably true <laughs> 25 or 30 years ago, right? Yeah, right. Not that long this ago. This wasn't the, the 1740s when when scientists were being trained in labs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably if you look at some of the older members of your own department, chances are they may have come straight into a faculty job right out of graduate school. Because you know, I think, as you mentioned, not that long ago, that was kind of the model. Most people who went to graduate school, their goal was to become a faculty member themselves at a different institution, and most of them actually did that. And so it made sense for the training experience to prepare them to do that, right? Yeah, and and we have often quipped that that training experience doesn't really train you to lead a lab. It trains you to work at a bench, but fine. Well, and that's that's totally true. And I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of PIs today would say the reality is what they actually have to do as a PI. They weren't really trained to do. Yeah, they um, needed to modernize it fifty years ago. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Even for the people going on to start yeah. their lab, um, but the idea being, PhD training really is this apprenticeship model, this apprentice model, where you know you go and work side by side with someone doing science, and you learn to do science yourself, so that you can lead your own scientific pursuit independently on your own. So you think there's a better way, um, since since so few people actually go on to lead their own labs, we don't need to actually tailor the training to, you are apprenticing under me to become just like me. Yeah, well, I guess that's the thing we should at least think about is if the training model we're using is fairly similar to the training model we used 30 or 40 years ago when most everyone was going on to start their own labs and the reality today is only, let's say, 10 or 15% of people are doing that. Well, is that really the best model for the vast majority of people? And I would argue for even the people who are going on and starting their own lab these days, they're not doing that directly from graduate school. What do they do? Well, you have to do I mean, you have to do a postdoc and for at least five more years. I was going to say it's six years and seven years. And that can be your apprenticeship for running your own lab. So in my mind... Is there really any need for graduate school, the PhD and the sciences to be structured as this apprentice model to run your own lab? I would argue maybe not because no one is going on to run their own lab right out of grad school. You know, uh, I bought a house recently and on the application for the mortgage, they ask you how many years of schooling you have. And I <laughs> I had to do the math. I was like, wait a second. Luckily, it wasn't check boxes one, two, three, four. <laughs> this should be this should be 12 plus 4, but it's 12 <laughs> plus 4 plus 5. You know, oh, man. Makes you feel really great. I wonder if that helps or hurts on the application. Uh, maybe it hurts because they recognize <laughs> that you were a poor grad student for so long. I have no idea. Yeah, there's probably like a bell curve, like a peak number of years yeah. that you have the most earning, and then it tails off after that. Didn't make me feel better. Yeah, so I guess what I wonder is, is there a way, to your point, Dan, 
you know, there are a lot of really important things that happen during that training process. So what I'm not trying to do is discount or, or change things in such a way that graduate students aren't learning to think critically about problems, to identify the right questions to ask, and, and ways to, on their own, figure out ways to solve those problems. I think that's fundamentally true. I guess what I'm wondering is, as a PhD drags on to year six and seven, like, really, what are you getting? Like, is there really that much more learning that's happening at that point? Or... Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. It feels like um, the time it takes is secondary, though. So you drag on to year four or five because you haven't apprenticed in the way that we've asked you to. You haven't written enough papers. Um, but it, it seems like the fix you're asking for is fundamentally about how we're doing the training, not about how much time it takes. So what if it takes seven years to do the training the right way? Um, is that okay? Well, I think I think by tightening up some of the structures, by or at least paying more attention to some of the structures or being more intentional at least, a byproduct of that could be actually shortening the time to degree and making it more standardized. Because one thing I've seen is a lot of departments might say, okay, you should have a committee meeting every six months or once a year. But that's not always enforced very well. You know, sometimes it's kind of up to the student to do that or maybe up to the director of graduate studies to kind of facilitate that. Uh, but in a lot of situations, in a lot of departments, there's no one really paying a lot of attention or no one really prodding students and making sure, okay, let's make sure you've had those meetings and it's easy for months to slip into years and and no one's really overseeing that process. I guess if you think about medical school or dental school or really any kind of school besides graduate school. I love school. thinking about medical school and dental <laughs> school. Like there's something about knowing the day you start medical school. Yep. You know what day you'll be done. Like if if you do all the things, right? If you pass the classes, you pass the classes, take all the practicums, do, do all the stuff rotate, you're supposed yep. to do. Me and all these people here with me, we will all have our MD degree on this day four years from now, right? And it's a lot of work, right, to get there. It's not trivial. Ton of work, yeah. You don't do get that. a lot of sleep during that period of time, but yeah, yeah. And I guess I wonder is if let's imagine there is a a general five year timeline for the PhD. You know, you could still come in during that first year. You could still do your rotations, choose a lab. That's all the same. You join your lab. And now let's say, because there's this fixed time point, there's a little more incentive for the department and actually for you as the student to stay on top of your progress. And so, you know yourself, Dan, if you were presenting at lab meeting, like that week before would be super productive (laughs) because you knew you had this thing coming or you're getting ready to go to a meeting. Could do right. more experiments in one week than I would do in a semester. Yeah, of course. I had to, yeah. But because you had this thing coming up. So let's say the departments were much more diligent about saying, all of our students, you have to have a committee meeting. You will have a committee meeting once per semester. Therefore, every student, their progress is being much more carefully monitored. They're getting advice much more consistently. And the fact that they're working on this finite timeline, I would argue, and we've talked about it on the show before, one of the main reasons students lose motivation is because at some point, you know, you get four years in, you can't see the end. And it's like, well, who cares if I do this gel today or tomorrow? I mean, big deal. But if you've got this deadline kind of hanging over your head, you're going to constantly be motivated because you've, you've kind of got this finite end date when you know this is going to be over. It's fair. I like the idea of the fixed committee meetings and um, I suspect that if you're going to draw the parallel to medical school, then you also have to 
except that that committee meeting may end with, uh, uh, we don't think you're actually going to make it. You're not cut out for this. Or I, I think people are released from medical school um, when their grades suffer. They have a meeting with some faculty members and the faculty assess their progress and say, look, you've got one more you know, semester or something to make this work. Otherwise, we can't keep you. And which, re- which I think there will be PhDs who have that same conversation. Whereas in the current system, you know, you can float for five more years. I think the reality is that happens now. I mean, that is certainly something that can happen as a result of a committee meeting. But you can hide a lot by not having a committee meeting. Right. So I would argue, isn't it better if that is truly the case for that to happen two and a half years in versus you sort of float and hide and then you've been there, you've spent four and a half years of your life. I think it is better. I'm I'm not arguing against it. I'm saying I think it is better. Um, I think it's going to be painful. But but it will identify it much earlier in the process, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and if we think about the end, because one thing that I will acknowledge, one thing that's a little different, fundamentally different, really, between graduate school and something like medical school, is you are trying to produce science. You're trying to produce research and results, and that doesn't... Something new. And, and I know, Dan, you've been in multiple labs, and you've left multiple labs. It never... There's never just a tidy bow that you can wrap at the end where you just finish. You don't finish your project, right? That's right. You you never finish. You just stop. You just so- stop at some point, um, which on one hand, maybe that is a reason why the five-year finite PhD could work because you really are never done. But, you know, there will be a situation where maybe I'm, well, I'm working on this paper. It's not going to be quite done at five years. or But, you know, that happens too. I remember when I finished my PhD, uh, it was about five and a half years and I was finishing up one paper I wrote after I was in my postdoc lab, you know, and that wasn't in a finite PhD situation, but I think people are doing that already anyway. And I think what you can do too is there could be some flexibility built in where let's say at the end of graduate school, I think I want to go on and be a PI. So it's going to be really important for me to get more papers if I can. That's useful currency. right? So maybe it'll exist some flexibility where I can stay if I want to and and try to finish up this last experiment, this last paper or whatever. But if you want to go on and do business or, sci- yeah, or science ahead, writing... You go ahead and be a masochist. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> yeah, but the thing about that happens to a lot of people out there. We know a lot of people go on to different careers after graduate school. What is being gained from them just because there's this hurdle of, oh, I have to finish this paper before they let me graduate, it's not useful to them for their career because having that paper is not useful currency for the thing that they want to do. It's true. It's probably not that useful for the PI. It would probably be more efficient for the PI to like cut that person loose and let somebody who's really more motivated to be there and finish it up, finish yeah, it up. It's funny you bring that up. Um, the last paper I published in grad school um, we collaborated with another lab, and I worked p- pretty closely with uh, this other guy. And we could have argued over who got first author, because we both, I think we had about an equal number of figures in the paper, and we had kind of thought of it and worked together on it. I didn't expect to need first author papers, so I didn't talk about it. You know, who cares? And no one has lately asked me whether I have any first author papers, so I guess it, I'm okay. There you go. So it wasn't important to you. Yeah, but let me let me um, nail you down here, Josh, okay. on some some more specifics. So you talked about um, having committee meetings regularly and on a fixed schedule. I like that. Do you see this still being project based? Is it still that I come in and um, we identify some some realm of science where I can push the envelope? 
and I work on it for that fixed five years and I'm done. Because if that's the case, if it's still that project-based thing, I'm not going to pick a mouse lab. Like we, we had a knockout mouse. If it were a fixed time period, that would have been a terrible idea. Well, those happen a lot faster now. Everybody go to flies. <laughs> but you know, but isn't that the case now? I mean, is it true people who go to a mouse lab graduate way slower than people who go to a fly lab? I have no idea. We should find out. We should find out. I guess what I would argue is if that were a big deal under the current system where there is a very open-ended end date, if people were super hyper-concerned about getting done faster, that would select for people running away from these from mouse, <laughs> mouse labs, labs yeah. and run to like model systems like worms or flies. And that's not happening. If anything, I think people would be more likely to choose maybe some of these more involved systems if they knew they weren't going to be stuck there forever. That you wouldn't be tied to the phenotype. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it looks like it's embryonic lethal. Sorry, no, no degree for you. Yeah, and, and you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at, Dan, more broadly is an issue with graduate training is, again, to use the comparison to medical school, which is not a great comparison because they're fundamentally different. But really with any other kind of school, you can fill in the blank. If you and I start um, the same medical program, our experience is going to be pretty similar, right? We might take a couple different classes or whatever. Um, But for the most part, for me to get my MD and for you to get your MD, it's going to be pretty much the same. For graduate school, we actually did. We went to the same graduate school. We entered the same PhD program. I remember. (laughs) But no two graduate experiences are like. They're vastly different depending on the lab you choose at the time you choose. And also, even if we chose the same lab, I mean, there were three graduate students who joined my lab around the same time. We all had vastly different experiences because even our projects within that same lab were so different. And so I think another source of trepidation that graduate students have is there's so much uncertainty and variability in that process that factors in when you talk about how long is this going to take me to get done. That's why I'm asking about whether you're going to make it this project-based because medical school is not project-based. Like, yes, everybody gets a slightly different cadaver, but they're all laid out just about the same. You take the same classes, you study together, you eat together, and I think because we are in that phase, we're training doctors in a very specific way to stuff all this knowledge into their brain for their next phase where they're actually seeing patients. Um, It can be the same, but for an exploratory research career, is it possible to tie it up in a neat bow so that everybody gets the same type of experience? I'm not sure it's possible. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to give the impression that I'm comparing PhD training to medical training because I agree with you. I think the, the goals are very different. I guess maybe what I'm saying is if the outcome you're trying to get is you and I in graduate school at the same time, given the fact that our labs are different, our projects are different, our experience will be really different. If we both spend five years there, doing independent research, trying to figure out problems and answer questions, will we basically gain similar levels of skills, similar skills, even though the projects are different, even though the labs are different? Maybe because of part luck, maybe my projects all work the way we thought. Our hypotheses turn out the way we conceived them initially, and so I end up with two or three papers in the course of my five years, and I'm out. Maybe you had bad luck. Maybe you got scooped like our friend Jessica we talked to on the show. Maybe, you know, the hypothesis seemed like a good idea, but it didn't turn out. There were all these pitfalls you didn't perceive. You spend the same five years, but because of those unforeseen consequences, you have no papers, but you can't graduate 
because maybe there's this requirement that you have to have a publication, but does that mean you, until you get that publication that may be another year or two down the road, you haven't learned to think or to analyze the way I have just because I got lucky? Yeah, as you're talking about it, I guess we did have very different experiences, clearly. (laughs) Um, But we both are better at reading scientific papers now, and we both will notice the the flaws in logic if the other person is is talking about something and we both can do certain techniques that were related to the fields we're in so yeah regardless of of the differences in our training we did come out with very similar skill sets i would say yeah and and i think anyone who goes through this process um, they are developing those skills i think there is a way there's a time at which you really, you know, you've got those skills nailed down and you're probably ready to make that transition to the next thing. And again, my point being, if we go back you know, to the original idea here, which was thinking about modernizing the PhD and really what's PhD training all about anyway, if it started as an apprentice model for individuals who wanted to go on and start their own labs, well, nowadays, graduate school is not the last stop you have this entire other apprentice step, the postdoc that you have to go through for another five years at least before you start your own lab. So why drag graduate school out (laughs) even longer, right? If you're going to have to go through another five years of growth and learning to be an independent researcher. And for those of those of us who want to do something else, are we learning to think more in that last couple oh, of years? Oh, I learned to think more. <laughs> you're learning that so your much more than last year. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know, Dan. I've, in a lot of ways, this was really, you know, these are ideas that have been swirling around in my head, and I've been shooting from the hip a little bit. I don't know if it's made sense. I really would love to hear people's ideas and opinions. That's exactly on this. what I was going to say. It, it seems like a great, great time to have a conversation with everybody listening. So as you think about what skills are valuable in your PhD training, um, how would you get to them most efficiently and effectively? And how would other people get to them? So maybe you learn a certain way, but how could we design a program that, that trained all of us in the same, um, the same basic skills that would make you a great bench scientist as you went on to be a postdoc, um, or would make you a great consultant or a great teacher or a great, whatever what are what would that training look like would it look like projects would it look like more classes would it look like i don't know going to schools and and teaching other people science i'm not sure exactly what the right answer is but i'd love to hear from people absolutely you know dan one of the things that led me to this is through my work that i do on a day-to-day basis but also through this process in this podcast to the people we've talked to and the stories we've heard you know i really think about what are the aspects of graduate training now that are really tripping people up, that are broken, that that are really impeding people's progress and, and their well-being. And I really feel like one of the big ones that we hear all the time is just this uncertainty that creeps in towards the end. And I know you experienced that too. And is there a way to mitigate that uncertainty with time to degree and it, not lose training? And I think there is. It is one of the hardest parts mentally, and I remember it so distinctly you know, like I knew I needed to be done, but I couldn't say whether that was a year or that was three years. And if if I knew the amount of time, I could make a plan to get through it. But when you could do another year and still be another year away, that's just all motivation goes away. It's so demoralizing to, to look down 
an endless hallway. Absolutely. And I imagine a day where it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Well, you almost talked me into it. <laughs> I'll keep working on it. I expect angry treat- tweets this week. <laughs> All right, Dan, let's move on. What do you have for me on the etymology puzzle this week? The clue last week was when walking through the woods, watch out for this genus of poisonous tree climbers. All right. Well, I, need, I needed the genus name. So. I know. So I was lazy this week. I was on vacation. I know you're talking about poison ivy. Yep. But I did not take the time to look up the genus, so you're going to okay. have to help me out. Well, the genus is Toxicodendron, and uh, you can kind of pick out some of the parts there. Toxicose, toxicon, poison, and dendrites or dendron, those are all Greek words, come from tree. So the clue poisonous tree climbers uh, was Toxicodendron. The, the reason I came up with this clue is because I've been super interested in what trees are growing natively around my house. And I was out walking and identifying the trees, and I saw some oak trees, and I saw some sweet gums, and I saw some other ones. And I walked up to this tree, and I, I held the leaf. I was like, this is really unusual. This tree, I was holding the branch. I was like, this tree has three leaves on it. Oh, no. And these three leaves kind of look, this looks just like a poison ivy tree, but that's silly. And I look up. And there's this big hairy vine attached to the oak tree that I'm standing in front of. And I'm holding the leaf of the poison <laughs> ivy that's sticking out of the giant vine. I mean, it was huge, absolutely huge. So I ran into the house and washed my hands. I don't actually think I'm allergic to poison ivy, but I was like, oh, this, this poison ivy is like after me. Sounds like you did a good test to find out. Well, I washed it off. I don't know how long it takes to... Next week on the show, we rub poison ivy on ourselves. And find out <laughs> if we're allergic to it. And then two weeks after that, you'll find out the results. Yeah, so Toxicodendron is a genus of flowering plants, and it's in the same family as cashews, Anacardiaceae. Remember the cashew? We oh, had yeah. the cashew clue? Yeah. So there you go. All also in the same family as the mango. Did you know that? I didn't. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I have a, a friend. You know her, too. Uh, she's allergic to cashews, but also mangoes, because apparently... Probably the poison ivy, too. Yeah. <laughs> Probably so. Okay. All right, Dan. Well, uh, did we have a winner this week? Yep. We have a repeat winner this week. Jonathan from Stony Brook. He won earlier this year, but uh, I thought it was kind of appropriate. Last week's episode was all about probabilities, and as you know, there is some probability that even if you've won before, you'll win again. That's right. you got to play to win. Dice have no memory. That is right. All right, Dan, what do you have for this week? Okay, the clue this week is, it looks like this limestone is oozing and dripping from the roof of this cave. I'll read it one more time. It looks like this limestone is oozing and dripping from the roof of the cave. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Very cool. And speaking of Amazon, do you buy stuff on Amazon? Constantly. Well, if you out there buy stuff on Amazon... You can go through our website, hellophd.com, click through our Amazon banner, shop as you normally would. We'll pay the same price, but we'll get a little kickback to help support the cost of hosting the show. Super. I'll do it right away. Fantastic. All right, Dan. Great week. Hope you enjoyed this watermelon beer. I did. It's extremely refreshing. I think it'd be a great beach beer. So get out there. Get one last vacation in, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Grab some watermelon saison if Get out you of the can. lab, people. And we'd love to hear your feedback on this show, but also if you have an idea for a future show, we'd love to hear that as well. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can tweet at us at hellophd or contact us on our Facebook page. All right, Josh. We'll see you next week. Try and stay cool. See you next week.